Well, church, I would invite you to open in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. We're actually going to continue the exciting conclusion of our last week's message um, and uh, look at the second half of 2 Corinthians chapter 9 this morning. We're in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. We're going to look at verse, beginning at verse 10. Really, this is, a, like I said, a, a conclusion to a message that was begun last week. I'll give us a little bit of a recap to catch us up. Um, we have been walking through a few chapters now involving the Apostle Paul uh, calling a people in Corinth to finish a commitment that they had desired and made to offer a collection for the church in Jerusalem who are suffering a variety of trials, likely famine and persecution, causing difficulty for the church in Jerusalem. Last week in chapter 9, we considered, uh, really verse 9 is helpful. Uh, We considered the man, who is a quotation from um, Psalm 112, who is distributed freely and has given to the poor, His righteousness endures forever. We saw that this man is one who believes that God is a giver and not a taker. That he has truly, that this man is truly free to give, not only because God has given to him in the past, but because God is sufficient for his need and for his joy now and forever. The Apostle Paul then lays out three examples of of the two perspectives on God, that God is a giver or a taker, the way that plays its way out in our lives as a people who have an exacted versus a willing generosity, or a sparing versus bountiful giving, or reluctant versus cheerful giving, that really each of those examples are in light of the two perspectives on God, God as giver versus God as taker. This week's scripture gives us then four results of giving in light of the gospel of Jesus Christ. What does it look like? What is the result? What is the great fruitfulness of a people who are engaged in generosity in light of who God is and what he has done in the world? So we'll consider... Begin our reading, 2 Corinthians chapter 9, beginning at verse 10. Follow along with me. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. You will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God. By their approval of this service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ and the generosity of your contribution for them and for all others while they long for you and pray for you because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. God, we do give thanks. We begin with thanksgiving, having seen you for who you are, 
remembered the sacrifice that you have made, even though we can call to mind this morning the many ways that we have fallen short, and more than that, our, our nature and propensity apart from you to divert to lesser things. But God, you have interrupted with the generosity of your grace, the lavishness of your grace. And so our response is thanks be to God. Lord, we pray that the abundance of your grace would be on us also this morning. By your word and the gift of your spirit at work among your people, you would bear the fruit of righteousness as we give attention to your word this morning. Thank you, Lord. We trust you for this in the name of the great grace giver, Jesus Christ. Amen. This morning we're going to look at four results of giving in light of the gospel. They're here. You can probably see them already. If perhaps you prepared ahead, looking ahead to the second half of the chapter, you've seen the four results of giving in light of the gospel. The question throughout the whole of the passage has been, what does it mean for our giving to be Godward giving? Or giving according to the fear of the Lord. What does it mean to give in light of knowing that the Lord God is the mighty God and the merciful God? Giving according to the right and true knowledge of God, walking with him in his might and mercy. What does it look like to give in light of who God is and what he's done? Really, all of these results in verses 10 through 15 spring from the reasoning of verse 8. So if, you, if you're a note taker and you like to mark up your Bible, you could circle or put a parenthesis next to verses 10 through 15 and draw an arrow back to verse 8 where it says, and God is able to make all grace abound to you so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. A great summary of the fruit of generosity in light of the gospel. God the giver, mighty and merciful, is about to make all grace, literally all gift, abound to you because God is an able giver. Now that's what we call an understatement. Okay, He's abounding in his generosity. We are always having sufficiency, all things at all times, so that we may become givers abounding ourselves. So let's look at the four items. We're going to begin at verse 10, where we see that God, the fruit of God's giving is a multiplication of seed for sowing. Look at verse 10. He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. Now, I want you to see the reasoning of this section. It's really important for all of the rest of the argument that Paul makes in this paragraph. Where does the seed upon which God works the miracle of, of multiplication come from? Where does the seed come from? Well, it's right in the first couple words, right? He who supplies seed to the sower is the one who also works the miracle of multiplication of that seed. He who supplies seed to the sower. God. God is the one who supplies seed to the sower for what purpose? For sowing. 
Now imagine a farmer who has seed for sowing, who has seed anyway, and he hoards and consumes all of the seed that he had in his seed stores. That doesn't make any sense. That's no farmer at all. That's just a simple consumer. The farmer rather sows his seed in faith. Every year and every season, sowing his seed in faith. Now, he could look at what he has and say, I'd better save that seed for food just in case it's a bad year, right? But instead, he sows the seed in faith. He prays, give us this day our daily bread, even as he sows his bread in the ground. All the way through the growing season, he prays, give us this day our daily bread. And into the harvest, he prays. And the Lord God, by the miracle of his design, multiplies the seed in the field. You see, he realizes that God has supplied the fruit of the last harvest, not only for food, but for planting. Where does the bread come from? Well, during the normal course of sowing and reaping, some of the seed is used for daily provision. Verse 10, he who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed. Perhaps instead of asking, how much do you require, Lord? How much do you require for me to be qualified as one who has provision and has done enough? Perhaps we should ask, how much as a bountiful sower should I keep back for daily provision? Perhaps if we oriented ourselves as sowers, as an agricultural, cultivating people in the world, that we saw our business as bountiful sowers, then we would have a right perspective to say, how much should we keep for food? What, Lord, have you provided for seed? And what have you provided for bread? You see, God's way is to multiply the seed. He provides more and greater opportunity. But for what purpose? What is the end for which he provides seed for sowing? Well, it's in the passage, isn't it? He who supplies seed to the sower and bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing and increase the harvest of your righteousness. God's way is to multiply seed for sowing for the end of a harvest of righteousness. Now, I'm going to come back to this in a moment, but see this. We sow seed almost always, all the time. It's time, talent, or treasure. This is what God has provided for us in this world, time, talent, and treasure. And we sow that seed, and this seed is usually the bountiful harvest of a previous harvest. But we sow the seed in faith for a future harvest. Harvest. For the Corinthians in our passage, they're specifically gathering a financial contribution. But we, what we sow is to the end, not of more time, talent, or treasure. What's the harvest that is our goal to reap? The harvest that is our goal to reap is a harvest of righteousness. Paul is not offering 
financial gain to the Corinthians for their financial gift. All right, I want to break that chain, okay? They're going to to sow the seed of their finances, but they're going to reap a harvest of righteousness. And really, the remainder of the passage is an unpacking of what that means. He's clearly telling them that the harvest they are to expect from their financial investment, their financial sowing, is righteousness. They will be growing up as a people who walk in the fear of the Lord. So here is the question. Is God a thief? He takes money. He takes money and all he gives is righteousness. He takes physical, tangible things and gives us spiritual things. Is God a thief? Well, let's consider. We sow something. We sow some physical, tangible time, talent, or treasure, easily measured, that which is temporary and passing. When we sow time, the time is going to pass, right? It's a temporary thing. It's passing away. We reap something that doesn't just change our circumstance, but when we sow time, talent, and treasure to the Lord, what we reap is change in our very selves. We reap a righteousness that's enduring, stretching on into eternity. You see, when I think of the use of my time, talent, and treasure, what naturally comes to me is an attempt to change my circumstance. I use time to invest in my family so that the circumstance of my family would be a better circumstance. I I invest talent or treasure in my home so I would have a better house to live in, to change my circumstance in my neighborhood or in my workplace. But when we sow to the end of righteousness, it's not a change of our circumstance. It's a change of ourselves. Galatians 6, 8 makes this explicit. For the one who sows to his own flesh will from the flesh reap corruption. But the one who sows to the Spirit will from the Spirit reap eternal life. Do you see the difference? Corruption. Ending. Not eternal passing away, not lasting, eternal life. You see, God is more than a giver. He's a multiplier to an infinite degree. He takes the things that are fleeting, the things that are passing away, the things that are really nothing, that over and over again the Scriptures call butt grass. And He gives us things that are infinitely valuable and endure forever. Jim Elliot has said, He is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. And he experienced that very joyous, eternal reality. Sometimes righteousness looks like more time, more talent, more treasure. We sow And the Lord multiplies exactly the thing that he's given. But we have to ask, it's only truly a harvest of righteousness when our hearts become bent all the more to reinvest what he's given. 
to the end of righteousness, if the Lord would provide more, does it have the effect in our hearts to say, oh God, all the more to invest in righteousness and eternal things? You see, the work of righteousness is the work that God has done in our hearts and in our community through the investment of our worldly goods and eternal things. Now, sometimes the righteousness toward which we invest looks like God breaking us from habits of consumption. I wonder if one of the fruits of generosity is simply to get it out of our hands. What a, what a work of God to break us from the unrighteousness of simple consumption. Sometimes righteousness looks like simple joy and thanksgiving and partaking in what God has provided. Thank you, God. You see, I used to just consume this for a momentary fleeting pleasure, but now, God, you've given it to me, and I see it as a gift from your hand that's supposed to produce praise to the eternal God. And righteousness is birthed within us through thanksgiving. Sometimes righteousness looks like the joy and thanksgiving in seeing others provided for. And we say, God, thank you that you have put me in that cycle of your provision. This is exactly where the Apostle Paul goes in the next section. Look at verses 11 through 13 with me. Verse 11, you will be enriched in every way to be generous in every way, which through us will produce thanksgiving to God. For the ministry of this service is not only supplying the needs of the saints, but is also overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, who by their approval of the service, they will glorify God by your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Thanksgiving to God is the second great fruitfulness of a people who, who, bear, who operate in generosity in light of the gospel. A harvest of righteousness anticipates and sows expectantly. It hopes to produce, literally, out of the fruit of our labor, a produce that it would result in thanksgiving to God. What a great goal of generosity. God, allow me to sow in such a way that thanksgiving arrives in my heart and in the hearts of those around me. At the core, the disciple of Jesus is a worshiper. That is our fundamental identity. Perhaps you've heard me define a disciple as, in the past, a a joyful worshiper through discipleship and mission. Discipleship is not our great end goal. If so, it would be about us. Our great end goal is that we would become worshipers of the greatness of our God, a people of thanksgiving. We're a people who leverage our following of Jesus, who leverage our pointing of our community to Jesus Christ for the purpose of the praise of our God. Faithfulness, mission, are pragmatic means to another end. And that end, our goal, our harvest to reap, is joyful thanksgiving to God in our lives and in the lives of those who are around us because it's the Lord who is worthy of praise. The bounty that we seek is overflowing in many thanksgivings to God, the passage says. So in verse 13, if you look at it again with me, 
by their approval of the service, they will glorify God because of your submission that comes from your confession of the gospel of Christ. Specifically, your generosity comes from your confession of the gospel. This gospel that we, who have received eternity by grace, by a gift, through faith, we are a people who are dead in sin. And we have been made a people who are alive in Christ. Is there thanksgiving in us? So that we sow to the glory of God so that thanksgiving is birthed in others as well. If your generosity leads others to praising God, does that sound like reaping bountifully to you? Now here's the thing. You might have heard that as a rhetorical statement or maybe a good note to take, or you might not have heard it at all. So let me ask you to hear it as a diagnostic question. Ask your heart, does generosity that leads to others praising God sound like you reaping a bountiful harvest? Is that your goal? That the Lord would receive the praise that's due his name? Is there any joy in your life to that end so that you might leverage your life, your time, talent, and treasure to that end? If so, you ought to give thanks as well. Because that means that God is bearing the fruit of righteousness in you. That is the the bountiful fruit of righteousness being born in you as well. No wonder the passage ends, thanks be to God for his immeasurable gift. Let's move on to the third great fruitfulness of generosity in light of the gospel. The third is verse 12. It's actually tucked in the midst of the three verses that we just read. Verse 12, for the ministry of this service service, is not only supplying the needs of the saints. He says it should seem obvious to us so that we would be pushed to remember the thanksgiving to God as a fruit. It should remain obvious to us that it is God supplying the needs of the saints through us. The ministry is supplying needs. That's a glorious fruit. What do I have to give in the world that I have not received? Generosity is the regular demonstration to our hearts that God will not only give us our daily bread, but he will give us bread to supply the needs of others. God's showing us something. He's showing us that he hasn't just purchased you, but he's purchased a people. He's demonstrating something to our hearts. Here we get another glimpse into God's economy of generosity and righteousness. And I think the word economy is helpful here. There's a a way to the way that God works in the world with our time, talent, and treasure, a movement and a flow. Where the church in Jerusalem had been suffering likely both from famine and persecution, as we said earlier, they were surely praying morning after morning, just as the Lord had taught them to pray, give us this day our daily bread. And then as they came to meals, they would pray, and perhaps without a meal, give us this day our daily bread. Where the church was praying this prayer, 
the church in Corinth, was becoming, by the fruit of the gospel in their midst, a people by which God would answer this prayer. So not only does the seed the Corinthians sow produce thanksgiving to God, it also directly provides for the needs of the church. And they get a first-row seat to God doing that very thing. So let us see clearly that God's work in the gospel has created a people It has formed a church according to God's design, the church, the fruit of God's own generosity, the church, the fruit of God's generosity in the world becomes a playground for the multiplication of his grace. And what is an economy? An economy requires movement. That's why the economy has been hit so hard in the moment that we live when there's so much that is static. There's so much that is remaining in place. I was reading just recently why there's a corn short, short, coin shortage. It's because the coins are sitting in your piggy bank at home. That's why. There's not a, there's not a movement. An economy to function requires movement. God has given grace, not that it would simply sit in your lives, but he's purchased an economy of grace, which is called the church in which there's a movement of grace and multiplication and cultivation and growing up in grace in the church. You see, the church is not a zero-sum economy. It says that God is always pumping more resources into the economy as the church loves one another. It's an economy where time, talent, and treasure, the giving of our very lives, flow from one Another, all the while, God is growing this movement, multiplying our investment in one another by His Word and by His Spirit, growing up in thanksgiving and righteousness, not only to provide one another's needs, but to grow up in Him, seeing His grace at work among us. We get a front row seat to seeing what God is doing in the world. And seeing him do it through us. Which brings us to the fourth implication. The fourth great fruitfulness of a people who walk in generosity in light of the gospel. Verse 14. Look at it with me. While they long for you and pray for you. Because of the surpassing grace of God upon you. See how God knits his children together in a web of grace, giving and receiving, always provided for by the Father. Let us remember where the church came from. The church is purchased by means of the grace of God. A people who were not a people have become a people by God's design and God's work in the gospel of Jesus Christ through the sacrifice In the place of sinners, that we might be forgiven, we become reconciled to God. Being reconciled to God, we become reconciled to one another. God has knit his children together by means of his grace so that we become a web of grace together, giving and receiving, but always provided for. While we're investing in one another to the praise of the Father, God is investing in his church increasingly knitting us together by grace. Look at the passage again. 
It's beautiful. It's sitting there. I, I read it and read it and read it, and then I'm like, oh my goodness, it actually says, while they long for you. The church in Jerusalem loves the church in Corinth. They long for them. There's a desire that has been placed in them of love, and they pray for you. They pray for you as they walk in generosity toward them. The image comes to my mind of a great Thanksgiving feast. I love Thanksgiving because it's a simple meal. It's not gourmet. It's not complex. It's pretty much meat and potatoes, right? Okay. I know there are vegetables there somewhere. But for me, and you heard me give this example a couple of weeks ago. I don't know how much it speaks to your hearts, but I'll go and say it because it speaks to mine. But mashed potatoes, people. And when you sit that bowl of mashed potatoes in in front of me and my mother-in-law, when she makes it, she just puts a stick of butter so it melts and just sits on top like a, like a, like a mashed potato lake, all right? And when you sit that bowl, I, I know I just lost like half of you, and you're really disgusted at this point. Maybe I'll let you give an illustration next time. But uh, is it, as you sit that bowl in front of me, as so often happens in our Thanksgiving table, I just figure it's for me. Like, I just kind of take whatever that little plate that they put in front of me aside, and I just sort of move it in, right? But that's not how a Thanksgiving feast works. On the table, in front of everyone, are beautiful, bountiful feasting. All by the Master's provisions. And each one takes a portion of the bounty and places it in front of them, and then passes to the left. And we're passing the beautiful, bountiful provision of the master to one another. There's not a lazy Susan that's just revolving. It's not a buffet table. It's a table where the provisions are set in front of each of us. And we keep passing to the next as they have need and as they ask. And you know what happens? There's something that grows up that's better than a buffet table. There's a noise of requesting and providing. And it becomes festival. It becomes joyful. It becomes real feasting as we say, could you pass me some of those potatoes? Those were really good. And some of you are like, Jeremiah, you can just keep them. And it becomes noisy and festive. All the bountiful provision. And it begins to overflow. And all that noise and all that festivity and all that joy among the people who are so well provided for It begins to sound like thanksgiving to the feast provider. The whole table and all the bounty that is built upon it is gift. And the joy of the people around the table as we begin to participate in the gift, the whole family sits around the table of God's grace, giving thanks as we feast and fellowship and provide for one another, passing the plates of God's provision, observing the miracle that the trays and the bowls never seem to run dry. As he fills it up over and over again, as the one who provides seed to the sower, bread for food will supply and multiply your seed for sowing, as long as the economy of the table keeps passing to the left. Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. Do you see? The gift of God's provision is better than what we have received. What God has provided is a whole economy of bountiful joy. 
generosity, born of the gospel, is our agreement, God, what you've decided is good. This way is good. I like the way of my God so that I would join in participating in it. Before we close, there are two things I need to draw our attention to. The first is an absolutely crass, vulgar perversion that somehow giving to some ministry some amount of money is a means by which you would get rich. Where? Anywhere in the whole of Scripture is that anywhere close to what God holds out as his great and good plan for anyone's life, anywhere. It's an absolutely upside-down and truncated view of the gospel. Where in the Scriptures does it say that you ought to invest your worldly goods because the great payoff of God's grace is more of the world. You just can't make that argument. The order of this prosperity gospel is truncated, perverse, and it goes something like this. It's two easy steps. You give what belongs to you. God gives you more so that you can have more. Rinse and repeat. You'll notice in those two easy steps, it's all about you. It's about you at the beginning. It's about you at the end. And with a little bit of God talk, there's some magic of God in the middle. But really, at the beginning and end, it's really about you. For you, through God, to you. But the order of the truth of the Scripture, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, is broader and infinitely more profound. You were dead. So it's not, about, it's not from you. God gives you all that you have according to the riches of His grace which He lavished upon us. Okay, so it's from God. You sow God's provision in the fear of the Lord according to His character and according to His purpose. And so it's on account of the Lord. God continues the miracle of His grace so that you reap abundantly whatever is needed for your good, for the good of the church, and to His glory. And so it's through God. And you are now a full circle participant in joy and generosity and thanksgiving and praise, all of which is from God and through God and to God. It's all about God. This is the truth of the Scriptures. This is what has been laid out by the Apostle Paul throughout 2 Corinthians and the rest of the Scriptures. No wonder the passage ends in verse 15. Thanks be to God for His inexpressible gift. What's the gift? Cold, hard American coin? Benjamins? Are you serious? You're going to trade God and His righteousness for that? God forbid forbid that would ever be the goal 
of our increase. The gift is to know God in a true, eternal relationship, to know the genuine fear of Him that leads to a love of God and His way. This is what generosity teaches us. That we get to participate with God as beloved children in the dispensation of His grace in the world. That's a gift. Now, the second thing that we need to close with is there are a few words that you'll notice aren't in the sermon. And really, this is worthy of an entire message, so please forgive me if I run quickly. It's because they simply aren't in the passage. They're not in this scripture. They're not given as a command nor an instruction for the church really anywhere in the New Testament. The word is tithe. When it's used in the gospel, it's used two ways. By Jesus, only to condemn the scribes and Pharisees for their failure to keep the whole law, and by the Pharisee in the temple as an expression of his self-righteousness. Now, I don't have time here to go into it in detail, so let me simply say, while the tithe remains instructive for us, instructive, like the whole of Scriptures do not cease to be instructive for the people of God to know about our God and His character in our lives and in history. The tithe was explicitly given to God's people as an act of generosity, God's generosity to give them this instruction for the provision of worship at the temple. With Jesus and his fulfillment of the purposes of the temple, so too Jesus has embodied and fulfilled the purpose of the tithe. But the purpose of generosity remains. It's for this reason you can see it very clearly in the rich young ruler. He could say with integrity, and Jesus doesn't argue with him on this point, that he has kept the whole law. Surely with the temple standing and prior to the sacrifice of the Christ, this would include the collection of the tithe for the provision of the worship at the temple. He had not failed in keeping the whole law, except he had failed precisely at the point of generosity. He gave to God what God required. He fulfilled his end of an exaction and so figured himself righteous. Jesus saw his heart, knew that he was one who had sowed sparingly. And so for this reason, the young man went away sad. If you want to live in the fear of the Lord like the righteous man in Psalm 112 quoted for us in 2 Corinthians 9, 9, we will not do it by repeating requirements and figuring percentages. Rather, what we'll do is we'll follow the teaching of the Lord's apostle here in 2 Corinthians. We will see and provide for the needs of the gathered church. Certainly, we will see to the, to the provided needs for its ministry and for its ministers. That's sure. And so we'll take a collection each week to that end. But our appetites will not be satisfied. We will desire to increase the harvest of righteousness. We will want to sow bountifully, and so we will constantly be asking, what opportunity, Lord, do you have for us to participate with you in what you are doing in 
the world through your church. Show me another field that we might sow in as a household, as an individual, as a church, as a community. We want to sow bountifully. Just this afternoon, we're going to have the opportunity to do just that, to sow in South Africa. If you haven't made plans already, and perhaps if you have, a generosity would be to change those plans and put them off, perhaps. If you haven't already, we're going to have a Zoom call at 1 o'clock with John and Naomi Menton and their ministry of forever mercy among the orphaned and displaced in South Africa. We would invite you to join us on that Zoom call as we discover together how we can partner with our global mission partners as a church together. Just this afternoon, we have that opportunity. May we search and seek for God the giver and find in our hearts a willing, bountiful, cheerful generosity. If we covet, may we covet, long for a multiplication of this one thing, thanksgiving to God. It's reaping the fruit of righteousness in our hearts. May we see thanksgiving to God, supplying of the needs of Christ's church, and a beautiful, prayerful knitting together of a church that longs for one another, one another as we dine together at a table of abundant, lavish grace. God, if that would happen, since we've seen it happen, we know it's your grace. You have worked the miracle of purchasing for yourself a people. We're stingy. We're sparing sowers. And yet we've begun to see the work of your grace in us, to lift up our eyes, to see the opportunity to sow to the end of righteousness, of thanksgiving, of provision, and the knitting of your church together in desire and prayer for one another. May you do this all the more in the midst of this particular church here at Cross Point Coast in our lives. And when we see it, when we see genuine generosity growing up in us, we know that's the grace of our God at work among your people, and we will give you praise. Thank you, God. We celebrate your grace at work among us this morning. We pray this in your name, in the name of Jesus. Amen.